from time to time, we, we've come to realize that the climate of the world and what is happening throughout even our nation uh, is truly a wake-up call to the church. I've never liked to take the issues of prophecy as something that's interesting. You know, we often hear the word interesting. You know how sometimes people use the word interesting to say they don't like something? You know, you tell them something, they say, well, that's interesting. But they don't like it, you know. Well, Bible prophecy isn't interesting. It's essential to our understanding of what God is doing in the last days, especially because He promised so much to be happening in the last days. And it seems that every day on the, you know, on the news or on the, on the front page of our newspapers, there's something going on that should awaken us. Not only to the things that are happening in the world, but to awaken us to the life that we're to live for Jesus Christ before Christ comes again. Because there's a lot of people that don't know Jesus still. And whenever that time comes for that time of the gospel to kind of come to an end, where the last seven years that we're going to talk about a little bit tonight begin, it will be too late for some people. And by the end of that seven-year period, it will be too late, period, for many people. So as I see the things happening, for example, here in Texas and in, in Oklahoma with the floods and the tornadoes and, and the devastation that's going on in, in Dallas, Austin, uh, Houston, the things, the, the things that we see. I, I know a lot of us have family down there or, or we've had uh, our kids go to school over there and we've, we've been very concerned about these, these issues, you know. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to pray. Ask God for wisdom and understanding about what's happening in these end times and not, not to take it for granted. See, that's exactly what happened in, you know, in 2001, 9-11. After 9-11, I mean, for, for a while there, you know, every, you know, we became like a one, one nation again. You know, there was certainly uh, putting down of a lot of differences politically to become one nation. But then after a while, there was a time when we went back to to normal as we thought normal to be and that is not normal to have as divisive of a nation that we have today but that was actually foretold in the scriptures there would be a, a rise of lawlessness in the country and the love of many would wax cold the love of many would just grow cold so we, we find ourselves living in the midst of the signs of the times and the times of the signs. So what we do when we study the book of Revelation as we have or, or the books of prophecy of, of the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, which we've already done, and uh, now spending our time here in, in the book of Daniel, 
And eventually, and I've turned it around to where we finish Daniel, we go into Ezekiel because uh, uh, we are going through the Bible, by the way, at the same time. You know, it's, it's, it's part of what we do here at the church. So I, I pray we, we, we just take the time to, to recognize the seriousness of, of why we do what we're doing. In the Word of God. Let's turn to uh, Daniel 9, verse 25. But uh, to begin our reading tonight, I want to start in verse 24, which we focused upon primarily last week, verse 24, because these last four verses, 24, 25, 26, and 27, are really all tied together. It's, it's one strong unit of, 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 of prophetic insight that God is giving to Daniel through. Gabriel, the angel or the messenger. And uh, this is where we were last week, where he received this message. Seventy weeks or seventy sevens are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to steal, uh, I'm sorry, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Then in verse 25 it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild, or I'm sorry, to, to build Jerusalem, in, in effect that's rebuilding as well, but uh, going forth of the commandment to restore and to build uh, Jerusalem unto the Messiah or unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, again weeks of years, and threescore and two weeks, the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. All of this, of course, we will break down very uh, detailed. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. I began with verse 24 this evening as a springboard to the prophecy of the 70 weeks as presented to Daniel by the messenger Gabriel. A prophecy that actually defends without question the literal view of all prophecy. And I want to say that, that, that this prophecy, again, is that prophecy that defends, without question, the literal view of all prophecy. All prophecy of the last days, or all prophecy of the end time, is a literal view. It's literal, not figurative, not spiritualized in any way to mean something else that it isn't. And we'll see that here in verse 25 very, uh, very clearly. But even in verse 24, we're looking at the literal character of prophecy. Verse 24, what we studied last week in detail, 
really gives us the literal character of the prophecy given here at the end of chapter 9, which points out the chronology of the history of Israel. And I'm not saying that that history is, is the total history of Israel. But indeed, a major part of the history of Israel as it pertains to the last days, as it pertains to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, again, going back over to um, verse 24. The prophecy says, and this is God speaking to Daniel, He calls the nation of Israel, what? He calls them thy people. Thy people, Israel. That's literal. Then he calls the holy city. He mentions the holy city there. That's Jerusalem. No other city, no other place. He's speaking directly and specifically about the nation of Israel and the the very city, the capital, which is Jerusalem. And then when he talks about to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, all of that pertains to the kingdom. All of that pertains to the kingdom that God has continually expressed to Israel is the kingdom that He's going to bring in upon the world. And lastly, when we read the last part of verse 24, to anoint the most holy, that of course deals with the crowning of Messiah as the King. So everything here is a very literal presentation of end time prophecy as it pertains to the nation of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem. And I can assure assure you there is a city called Jerusalem and it is the place that God cares about the most in all of this world. And it is the very city that the Scriptures tell us man is trying to divide and trying to conquer for itself. Time and time again, what we read about or what we hear about in the news concerning Israel and the state of Israel and the, and the city of Jerusalem has a lot to do with everyone wanting to divide that city up in one way or another. And where a person or where a nation or where a people stand in that particular question is significant to their understanding of whether they know the true God of Israel or not. Because God is very clear in the Scriptures, in many places, but especially in the book of Zechariah, that He doesn't care for anyone wanting to divide His city or His land, because it belongs to Him. So how do you uh, spiritualize that or... Or how, how do you, how do you meta, metaphorize that kind of thing? As if to say, well, Israel represents something else. Like a lot of people who today have this replacement theology idea that the church has replaced Israel. That, that is just false. That, that's false teaching. It's false teaching. We've talked about it a lot of times, so we don't, we're not going to spend a lot of time on, the, on, the, on that issue today. But that's the thing. 
replacement theology is not biblical. You have to twist the scriptures too much. You have to take a lot of scripture out of context to try to make that point. You have to take most, if not all, of the scriptures literally. Yes, there are some symbolic areas, of course, in prophecy because of the pictures, but they represent something that's literal. That's the point. Symbolism represents something that is, in fact, uh, literal. So essentially then what verse 24 is saying is this. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks of years of history are determined upon Israel until everything ends and the kingdom comes with Messiah reigning. That, that is, in a nutshell, is verse 24. 70 weeks of years, we, we might as well call it 490 years, of history are determined upon Israel until everything ends and the kingdom comes with Messiah reigning. We are not only looking at the literal character of prophecy here, but also looking at the finality of the prophecy. We're looking at the, at the fact that prophecy ends. Prophecy does come to an end according to God's plan and God's purposes and God's design. In other words, everything is final here in this passage, right? Everything is final. Finish, it says. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sin. To make reconciliation, which, which just means to atone for it. In other words, completely and, 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 and fully atone for sins or iniquity. And then to bring in everlasting righteousness. Not just some temporary righteousness, but everlasting righteousness. And to seal up the vision and the prophecy. What is to seal up? To finish it up. And to anoint the Most Holy. Of course, to anoint the Most Holy is He's the one who's going to come and sit on the throne for a thousand years on this earth. And then He's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. And then He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and, and a new Jerusalem where righteousness will dwell forever and ever. So all these things are final stuff. Final stuff. There's an end to prophecy. And so 70 weeks of years are determined before the kingdom begins. That is, 490 years are determined. Now that word determined is very important because it literally means to cut off. That is, divided from all other years. There are, there are 490 years that the Lord has cut off from everything else that are just determined for Israel. And uh, it's, it's cut off from the period of the time of the Gentiles or the times of the Gentiles. The time when world power is in Gentile hands. And as we read and study on, we find that God has made a threefold division of those 70 weeks. So there is that determination by God to set things in, in, in a particular order and in a, in a particular way. So if you look again at verse 25, and let's look at the text. Know therefore and understand, stop and realize what God is saying to the prophet and to us. To Israel and to us. To everyone who reads this. He says, know therefore and understand. We need to know this and we need to understand it. Now God would not give us anything that He wouldn't make to be uh, not understandable. I mean, what He gives us is understandable. But we have to listen and we have to pay attention to it. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment. Now that means there's a starting point. He's going to give us a clear starting point for, seven, for 70 weeks of years, for 490 years. 
He says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. That's not quite the ending point, but it is a certain division of, of, of the time. Shall be seven weeks, and notice how he breaks it down. Seven weeks of years and three score and two weeks of years. I'll explain that in a moment. Then you'll notice at the end, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. Now, I know that in some of your translations, the wall might be mentioned as a moat, or it might be mentioned as a, as a uh, let's see, a ditch. Or that's in the, in the margins of your notes of your other translations other than the King James. So that's... Uh, when you go to Israel uh, and, and you go to Jerusalem, there is sections there that you find that they actually built a moat around the city. But uh, primarily the walls is, is, is also mentioned about building that up. We'll talk about that with Nehemiah in just a moment. But before we can actually get into this prophecy, we must glean a couple of very important facts from the verse. So as we said, we're to know and understand this prophecy. You know, the Lord just d- doesn't make this so hard to understand that we would not be able to gather what this is all about. He would eventually hold Israel responsible. Here's the key. God is going to hold Israel responsible for this prophecy. God is going to hold Israel responsible for not knowing this prophecy, as we shall see later. <coughs> the second key point is the starting point of the command. The second key point is the starting point of this command. If you get everything else right, but mess up on the starting point, you will come up with a wrong conclusion. The starting point, we are told, begins with the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now, notice that it says nothing about the temple. You all see that? It doesn't say anything about the temple there in verse 25. All it says is to restore and to build Jerusalem. The city itself. That is what we need to be looking for in Scripture as our starting point for this prophecy. Now, let's look at the complete division of the 490 years. Oh, by the way, that's the rest of the verse. I forgot. It's such a big verse, I have to split it up in two. So, there's the 70 weeks of years and the three score and two weeks. Well, let's break it down a little bit. The division of the 490 years begins with a mention of seven weeks of years, which ends up, of course, being... 7 times 7 is 49. 49 years. And then he mentions the 3 score and 2 years, which we know to be 62 weeks. 3 score is, a score is 20 years, so 3 score is 60 years plus 2. How <coughs> many of you remember Abraham Lincoln's uh, uh, speech uh, at Gettysburg, the Gettysburg Address? 4 score and how many years? Seven years ago? Huh? Yeah. Four score? So what's a score? Twenty years. That's eighty years. Eighty years and so many years ago. Okay, so a score is that. So 62 weeks, three score and two, uh, two years is 434 years. So now you have a division of 49 years, 434 years. And if you're really good at math, you realize that that adds up to what? Oh, okay, all right. By the way, there's still one week we haven't talked about yet. 483. <laughs> you all get A pluses if you said 483. So verse 25 of our text deals with the 49 years plus 434 
which equals 483, what we will see at the end of this 483 year period is the ushering in, as it were, of Messiah the Prince. 483 years. That's why he, that's why he divided it the way he did. Now, the, the 49 years we'll talk about as well, because that's a very important division as well. But then you add the rest of those years, and 483 years is the coming or the ushering in of Messiah the Prince. Now, the title, uh, Messiah the Prince, which in Hebrew is Mashiach Nagid, Mashiach Nagid, is significant to the event represented in our text and I'll explain that in a moment as well. But again, this prophecy, for us to understand it, is based on a 360-day year. Not 365 like, like our modern, what is it, Gregorian calendar? Whatever it is. Anyway, it's not 365, it's based on 360. That's the Hebrew uh, uh, way of, of, of counting the, the number of days uh, in a year. So there's 360 days in a year, and that would come out too. 173,880 days. 173, for those of you taking notes, 173,880 days. If we can find the starting point, we then could count off the 173,880 days and come to this event of Messiah, the Prince. If we look at the scriptures, we can find four starting points. But of course, only one is correct. And you'll see why. Let's look at the first three starting points that we find in scripture. And actually, they're all kind of related to one another because of who gives the decrees. Uh, Keep in mind that the rebuilding of the city is the key. The rebuilding of the city. Remember, we're not talking about the temple. We're talking about the city. So in Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 1, we see a decree by Cyrus, king of Persia. In Ezra chapter 1, we're not going to go look at it, but you can look it up later. In Ezra chapter 1, we see a decree by Cyrus, king of Persia, to rebuild the temple. To rebuild the temple around 538 B.C. So at that point, once it's talking about the rebuilding of the temple, we know this isn't the decree that we need to focus our attention upon. But this doesn't speak of the streets or the walls of the city, only the temple. So this is not the starting point. In Ezra chapter 6, we see a decree by Darius, king of Persia, or the Medo-Persian king, to again rebuild the temple, which was at 520 B.C., but not the starting point. And there's a few other reasons why, but it's just, again, rebuilding of a temple, no mention really of the walls, and so on. In Ezra chapter 7, a decree is made by Artaxerxes in his earlier time of being king. Artaxerxes uh, Longimanus, or Longimanus, is, 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 is uh, you know, again, these are all historical kings, not just in the Bible, but in history. And he, he made this decree to restore the articles of the temple in 458 B.C. And again, this is not the starting point because it has nothing to do with the city or the streets of the city or the walls of the city. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, now remember that Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that you need to study 
together. But in time frame, Ezra begins first and then there comes Nehemiah. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, we now see King Artaxerxes, the same king, Artaxerxes Longimanus, give the command to Nehemiah. And he gives the command to Nehemiah very interestingly, and I'll show you in just a moment. He gives him the command to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the streets and the walls of the city. This is the starting point, which we are told occurred in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. Now turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. And when you turn to Nehemiah, uh, just realize, and, and by the way, Nehemiah is, is, uh, is, is before Psalms and Job and, uh, and Esther, and uh, right after Ezra. But in, in Nehemiah chapter 4, I'm, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm sorry. Nehemiah chapter 2. Please turn to chapter 2. One thing you have to remember about Nehemiah is that he was, of course, a captive under the Persian Empire. He was Jewish, but he was shown favor and he became the king's cupbearer, which means that he was kind of like a food taster and a cup, you know, tasted the wine, made sure that everything was okay for the king. He always had to have a good countenance about him to make the king happy. He never wanted to do anything to make the king sad or... Or, or angry or whatever, because the first one to lose his head over that would be the cupbearer. But, but he was respected. And, and one day, you know, he, uh, the king sat at, uh, you know, to have wine for him. And, and, and Nehemiah took, them, took him the wine and gave it to him. But the, the king noticed that Nehemiah was just not, you know, happy. He was really bummed out. And so, you know, the king asked him, well, you know, what's, why are you, uh, you look sad and you look sick. I mean, what's, what's happening? Uh, so uh, that shows us that he had a, little, a lot of respect for, for Nehemiah. He, he realized that Nehemiah was a, was a good man and he was a faithful servant. So he tells him, he says, uh, let the king live forever. He says, why should not my countenance be sad when the city, or why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lies waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? I mean, my city is just destroyed. You know, they, they, they put a temple up, but they just put stone upon stone and... And they got that, but the city's just open to every kind of enemy that it has. And he was saddened by this. So that's where we pick up in verse 4. Because there in verse 4 it says, The king said unto, unto me, because Nehemiah is telling the story, he says, For what dost thou make request? So I pray to the God of heaven. Now, always remember this about the prophets and the, and the servants of the Lord, whether it be uh, prophets like Daniel or, or just men like Nehemiah who were there as servants and and used by God. They were men of prayer. They were men that realized that if, if, they could, if they could trust in anyone, they weren't trusting in Artaxerxes or, or anyone else. He was trusting, Nehemiah was trusting in the Lord. He says, well, once the, the, the door was open, when the king says, well, what, what do you request? Wow, isn't that a great question for one of us to be asked? If, if we're really burdened about something and we want to have something fulfilled on the behalf of the Lord and, and His people. And, and so Nehemiah prayed. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I'll tell you why he prayed. A, a couple of reasons. He, one reason was he, he prayed so that his heart would be right before God in giving the right 
list to Artaxerxes that had nothing to do with himself, but had everything to do with his people. So remember that when you pray. And, and I said unto the king, if, please, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, sepulchres, that I may rebuild it. So he says, I, just send me to go rebuild the city. But then notice what he goes on. And, well, it says, the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And when will thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set a time. In other words, I, I, I told him that I would be coming back at a certain time. And moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over uh, till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me. In other words, the king gave me everything I asked for. According to the good hand of my God upon me. Nehemiah knew it wasn't the king that did it. It was God that did it. Through the king who was a pagan king. So in in effect, we just read through the passage where the decree was made. Now, the painstaking work of a man named Sir Robert Anderson. How many of you heard of Sir Robert Anderson? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, interesting. You're going to want to get to his book. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince. Now, this was written many, 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 many years ago. It's been out of print and back in print again. And uh, I would look it up someplace, you know, uh, Amazon or Christian Book. Uh, dot com, whatever, but, but get The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. It is probably the definitive book on the 70 weeks prophecy that we are studying here in the next few weeks. Not years, weeks. The painstaking work of Sir Robert Anderson in his book, The Coming Prince, details the precise work of arriving at the exact dates of the starting point and ending point of the 483 years. In other words, the 69 weeks of years of verse 25, from the signing of the decree by Artaxerxes to Messiah the Prince. And we'll talk more about Messiah the Prince in just a moment. By the way, I believe it was Sir Robert Anderson who had been a, a, a detective with... with um, Scotland Yard back in the late 1900s, early uh, 20th century, but mostly 1900s, last, last part of the, ni- uh, the 19th century. Uh, so the 1800s, last part of the 1800s, and into the 20th century. But uh, he was uh, also a great uh, believer, just a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he set out to, to figure out to the day when these things were happening. And to collaborate with Sir Robert Anderson, in the 1990 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, it states there, historically, and I'm mentioning this because I want you to see the historic aspect of this, that uh, Artaxerxes ascended to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire, listen, in July of 465 B.C. Now, Bible scholars and historians have worked very hard 
to know that when there's certain months mentioned, that is in a certain time frame, and, and uh, they, can, they can actually, putting together the two calendars, come up with these dates. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of time, but they've done that. And so if the command was given in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, which would put the year the, uh, the, of the command as being 445 B.C. 445 B.C. Now, according to Hebrew tradition, according to Hebrew tradition, when the day of the month is not specified, then it is taken to be the first day of the month. In other words, if it says on the 14th day of Nisan, then that's the 14th day of Nisan. But if it just says in, in the month of Nisan, then it is uh, understood that that's the first day of the month. So that's the tradition. So the day of the de- decree of Artaxerxes was the first day of the Hebrew month Nisan, 445 B.C., which corresponds then again, according to all of these calculations of the historians and Bible scholars, corresponds to the 14th day of March. Thus, our starting date is March 14, 445 B.C. That's the starting date because that was the day that Artaxerxes gave the decree or signed the decree to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Question. Again, why the separation of the 49 years and the 434, 434 years? Simply, it was during those 49 years that the city walls and the streets were rebuilt. And Daniel gives us a hint of what those times would be like. Because at the end of verse 25 he says, The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. In troublesome times, difficult times. Always remember that when God has called man, uh, his people, I should say, when God has called his people to do anything for him, there's always one thing for us to remember. God will be with us, but he wants us to always know that there's someone who doesn't want us to do what he wants us to do. There's always an enemy. There's always a, there, there's always a faction against us, as it were. So... You see, even though Nehemiah's wall construction project, when you read the book of Nehemiah, it took only 52 days to build a wall of the city because they had everybody working and he had everybody working all around the wall. And he even describes and gives names of all of the families that were helping and constructing the walls of the city and the houses that were on the walls. But even though it took 52 days, many years may have been needed to remove the city's debris. There were hardly any streets because there was debris everywhere. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you walk down some of the old city in the old uh, in the old sections where they've done excavation and stuff, and they show you the the the, the big uh, 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 limestone uh, rocks that uh, actually were carved out to be part of the walls that were actually torn up uh, by the Romans, uh, so that no stone would be left upon another. They're still there. And so it's like, whoa, you know, if, if this is the way it was there at that time, then it was going to take a lot more than just 52 days to clean up the city. So uh, after being desolate for many decades then, to build adequate housing then, and to rebuild the streets, and with some translations add also a moat or a trench or a wall, um, there were the walls and then there was all that other stuff. That took 49 extra years. 
Remember we were talking about how, how Herod's temple took over, I mean, some 60, some years, to, you know, to build it. Uh, and it, it kept be, being built even way after Herod himself. So when this was done, as Daniel's prophecy stated, <laughs> 200 years before Nehemiah's time, Daniel prophesied it. 200 years before Nehemiah's time, Daniel had prophesied that this was the starting point in the time of Nehemiah. But I want you to see something else. Go to Nehemiah chapter 4 while you're still there, Nehemiah. And I want you to look at verses 16 to 23. Because here it says, And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, uh, the shields, the bows, and the habergeons, which are the, the uh, breastplates, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, which means those who were constructing and all, everyone with one of his hands wrought in the work and uh, worked in the construction, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall one far from another. And what place therefore you hear the sound of the trumpet, restore, I'm sorry, resort ye there, uh, there unto, unto us, our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of them held the spears from the uh, rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise at the same time said I unto the people, let every one with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes save, saving that every one put them off for washing. Yeah, it was about time. Because you know how work clothes can get. And, but, but they were protecting each other because there was an enemy. There were men like Sanballat uh, and, uh, and, and, and Geshem and, and uh, uh, one other guy that uh, we don't like, uh, Tobiah. You know, these guys were, you know, at first they were mocking them for building the, the walls, but then they were ready to attack them. They, 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 you know, in other words, they were threatening them. So they were mocking and then they threatened. And of course, you know, they were ready to do any kind of damage that they could because they kept working. They kept trusting the Lord, but they protected themselves and they guarded each other and they worked with one hand. They were working with the other hand. They were ready at any moment. That's how we as believers in Jesus Christ need to be living our lives, working for the kingdom of the Lord and being vigilant because the work of the devil is always to destroy the work that God has given us to do while we are here. Okay, let's go back to the starting date of March 14. <laughs> Excuse me. March 14, 445, right? B.C., all right. I don't know why I left that out of my nose. March 14, 445. We're going to count now. Are you ready? We're going to count with our fingers. 173,880 days. Right? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> to come to our end date, which will bring us to the Messiah. So, from March 14, 445 B.C. to March 14, 32 A.D., that is 476 years. Now, what do we say the 7 and the 62 uh, weeks of years added up to? 
483. So now we're at, we're at 476 years, from March 14 to March 14 of 32 A.D. So that's with the understanding that from, BC, uh, from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. is only one year. There's not two years, because there's no zero year. So 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. is one year. So you have to understand that. There's no zero year. So 476 years now times 365 days per year equals 173,740 days. Now there's not a test after this, so don't worry. I see you sweating. Don't worry. I, I did the work for you. All right, so... <laughs> 476 years times 365 days per year equals 173,740 days. So we're still a little short. What do we have to add? Leap years. You all all do know that we have leap years. Okay, because we're we're trying to convert it to our calendar. Well, add for leap years 116 days over that period of time. And that brings us to a total of 173,880 days. Days, but more importantly, it brings us to the date of April the 6th, 32 AD. April the 6th, 32 AD. And that would be the day, and it involved Passover, by the way, okay? So remember that. It would have involved Passover in April because that's the time that would have fallen in 32 AD. The day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem and announced himself as king. Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince. That's how Daniel was told. Messiah the Prince. In essence, what he was saying was, that is the day that he would pronounce himself as the king. And what did he do? He accepted the praise as the king. He had never done that before. Let's look a little closer at this. The birth of Jesus Christ occurred around 3 B.C. or so. And remember again, we're dealing with two different calendars. But Jesus was not brought into the world as king, was he? He was born to a poor family, way away from home, in Bethlehem in a manger. We know the story. So it's interesting that as you read the Gospels and see when crowds wanted to make Jesus king, that he would retreat from them. But I want you to consider that in John 6.15, it says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And this he did often, because it wasn't the time. His time had not yet come. But there was one place where Jesus set things up so he can be proclaimed as king. It was during that week of Passover when the city was packed with people, and we see Jesus come riding into Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives, on the back of a donkey. Do you remember one other king in Scripture that rode a donkey? David, the king. 
Or at least we believe he did. <laughs> On the back of a donkey, Jesus rode in as Zechariah told us would occur. Zechariah the prophet. Chapter 9, verse 9, by the way, if you want to look it up. And in the Gospel of Luke, we're told this. It turned to Luke 19. We're going to be there just for a few minutes to read through the, the passage here. Because we have to, we have to know when the, the ending point of the 483 years is. They brought him to Jesus. That is the, the, the foal of a donkey, which is the colt of a donkey. They brought him to Jesus. Luke 19, verse 35. And they cast their garments upon the colt. And they said Jesus thereon. Now, you do remember, though, that Jesus set all of that up. He had that all set up himself. And as he went, verse 36, and as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. What else did they spread? Palm branches. And when he was come nigh... Even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. You remember I said not too long ago on a Sunday morning dealing with the book of John, our Gospel of John study, that Jesus did not commit himself to the people who believed only in the miracles. So keep that in mind. They rejoiced with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, this is important because it was the mighty works that made them realize that this had to be Messiah. All right. And this is what they said. Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowds were singing Psalm. This, this is from Psalm 118. Verse 26. Psalm 118, verse 26. A psalm that is to proclaim the King and herald the Messiah. And the Pharisees recognized exactly what was happening. And they knew that they themselves could not control the crowd. So, so they went to Jesus. And if you follow along in the next verse, in verse 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Tell them to be quiet because you're not Messiah. Why are you letting them do this? And he answered and he said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Why would that happen if the crowds were silent? Because this was the day that had been predicted over 500 years before His birth. That the Son of God, God the Son, would ride through Jerusalem as the Messiah, their King. Predicted. On what day? And what date? Well, today, many Christians call the day Palm Sunday. But specifically, it was April the 6th, 
32 A.D. You see, Christians didn't create the date. Christians didn't create the date. Remember I said that Jesus held the nation of Israel responsible for not recognizing this date on which Messiah was to come? Well, let's read on. Look at verses 41 through 44. And when he was come near, (coughs) he beheld the city and he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this day, in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Notice what he says. He's speaking to Jerusalem. In essence, the people of Jerusalem. If thou hast known even thou, at least in this thy day, your day, the things which belong unto thy peace, you would have peace if you recognize the Prince of Peace. But, he says, now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in, in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And Jesus clearly describes now, many years before, of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D. You see why history is so important to help us in understanding, and we helping history by the Bible making things very clear too. We always say that in 70 A.D. the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Historically it's accurate. So how accurate can it be then? Very accurate that we have just discovered the 173,880 days from the time of the decree of Artaxerxes to the moment that Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem as the king. What did Jesus do here? He wept over the city because its people did not understand the significance of what was going on that day. Hence, he rejected Jerusalem because Jerusalem would eventually reject him. Blindness had come upon the nation of Israel because they did not recognize the day it was. They were held accountable for not knowing the prophecy. Let us not be held accountable for not knowing the prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is going to lead us then to understanding in greater detail the next verse of our prophecy, verse 26. Which, if you have another hour and a half, we can stay and and study it. But I think we'll just save it for next week. Because it has an importance to the fulfillment of future prophetic events as well. Especially as we look at chapter uh, 9, verses 26 and 27. Now we're going to be dealing with another prince, but not the prince that we have just described. We're going to be describing the prince of the world, or in essence the Antichrist, in the next couple of verses. So as for the time of Jesus' return, no one knows the day or the hour. And so we need to be ready at any moment. We need to be ready. And this is why I began this this evening 
speaking to you about the seriousness of understanding prophecy, why it's important for us to take hold of these things and to encourage others to do that. I'd encourage others to come and, 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 and join us in, in our studies here because from here on, uh, I mean, it, it, it even gets better in a sense when, when, we, when we realize what Daniel is opening up from, from here on to chapter 12. And, and it's, it's something we need to understand and something we need to know. But it's also something that should encourage us continually to get our lives right with God to get our lives in step with God, to get our lives in step with the Holy Spirit, in step with Jesus, in step with all of the things that the Word of God teaches us about how we're to live our lives until the day of Jesus' return. So, we'll pick up here in verse 26 next week. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank You and bless You. For your truth, Lord, we, we realize how important prophecy is to remind us of the accuracy of your word, the reliability of your word, the faithfulness of your word, the clarity of your word, and how you really want us to know and to understand it. So I pray, Father, that you will continue through the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us and lead us and strengthen us in your word, not only to understand these things in our minds, but also to believe them in our hearts and to live them out through our lives. Living in faith and in trust in the one who is to come. The one who gave his life, who died for our sins, and who rose again from the dead. To conquer sin and death forever on our behalf. How thankful we are for that in Jesus' name. Amen.